Hey everybody, Alexa here and welcome to Murder in the Mountains. We have Adam and Holly as our guest hosts this week. Hey y'all. And I know we had two weeks off. Um, I have not announced to you guys yet, but I am pregnant. And by the time y'all listen to this episode, I will have eight weeks left to go. So Ryan and I have been getting things ready for the baby. And last week we were on vacation, partially with Adam and Holly. And now we're back. So are y'all ready? Ready. All right. So this week's case, it takes place in Townsend, Massachusetts in 1986. Brian Andrews lived with his two daughters, Annie, who was 15, and Jessica, who was eight. Brian's wife and the girl's mother had recently died of cancer, and the family was adjusting to life as a family of three. Brian began working longer hours to be able to support his family, and 15-year-old Annie began talking to a new boy from school as a distraction from her grief. But she was also, you know, 15. So she'd probably be doing that anyway. Adam, I said, like bad news. <laughs> so one day, Annie got a call from a boy named Danny. He told her that he got her number from a mutual friend at school. He was tall, blonde, and athletic. Annie was like, uh, you know, no friend told me that they gave a guy my number, but whatever. Um, you know, attention from a guy is cool. I'm getting, you know, my mom just died. So they began talking on the phone regularly. Danny eventually asked Annie out on a date and she agreed. He said that he would pick her up from her house and they would go to the local fair. So that long awaited day finally arrived and Danny came to pick up Annie. When she came to answer the door, she was greeted not by a tall blonde athlete, but by a five foot eight slim a dark, greasy-haired boy whose face was covered in acne. And Annie was obviously shocked because that's not at all who she pictured. And it was the 80s, so it's not like she could just Google him or find him on social media to verify what he told her. And I couldn't find any details on, like, if she asked Danny which friend gave him her number or asked his last name and asked around school, you know? But I'm assuming not since this was a total surprise to her but i feel like my first question would be like oh who gave you my number that's like for me i question everything but that would definitely be the first thing i would be like no tell me who gave you my number and if not like well what's your last name do we have any classes together what grade are you in you know what i mean like if your friend knows who this is, then you would ask your friend like, oh, tell me more about Danny. Right. So Annie, being the kind person that she was um, and still kind of needing that distraction, agreed to go to the fair with Danny. The pair went out and Annie began telling Danny about her family and told him about how her mom recently passed away. This instantly intrigued Danny and he began asking her questions about her mother's illness including grim details about her suffering and any pain that she went through. Okay, red flag. Exactly. If the catfishing wasn't the first red flag, this is the second red flag. Yeah, a catfish before catfishing was a thing. Right. Most people, like when you mention, oh, like my mom just passed away, I feel like most people don't ask more questions about it. They're just like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. And they kind of just like move on. 
not like tell me all the details. Right. So this made Annie obviously uncomfortable as it would anybody. And after about an hour, she told Danny that she had to get home, that she had a good time, but didn't want to see him again or pursue a relationship or anything. So she left and went home. Several days passed and Annie was bummed about the failed date and needed a new distraction, especially after Annie and her sister Jessica began talking more about their mother and the good times they had. So the girls decided to mess around and have a seance to try to talk to their dead mother. Uh, Okay. You're like, this is a turn that I did not. (laughs) This is a turn. Uh, Did they call Danny and have him join the seance? They did not. The seance is her new distraction since things did not work out with Danny. So they were just messing around and didn't expect anything to happen. And nothing did happen until that night. They heard knocking on their bedroom walls. They're like, cool. It actually worked like it's mom. But things around their home started to move around, like not before their eyes, but like if they sat a cup of coffee on the counter, it ended up on like an end table. And they're like, we didn't move that there what's happening so they obviously thought it was their mom correct i'm guessing it was not their mom also correct (laughs) (laughs) adam's giving me a look like why did you really ask that question (laughs) just to clarify it was not her mom Uh, this is not mystery in the mountains it is a murder (laughs) oh my goodness we could have another spinoff Maybe around Halloween time. Tell some normal activities. So the knocking on their walls got really annoying, like to the point where they were having trouble going to sleep. And all of this was happening when their dad wasn't home or if he was in bed. So they told their dad that they thought there was a ghost in their house. And obviously he did not believe them. One day when the girls were home alone, they heard knocking coming from the basement. When they got down there, they saw writing on the wall that said, I'm in your room. Come and find me. That is crazy. Let me guess. They went to go find them. And it was not their mom. Did they really go? They went to their room? No, they ran over to a neighbor's house. I was going to say, there's no, you always see these like horror films where it's like, someone rings the doorbell or something and there's like deep dark music going towards the knob of the door and you're like don't go towards the dark door and then they open the door and then they get killed that is not this case (laughs) so they ran over to their neighbor's house where they stayed until their dad got home from work they told their dad what happened and he thought the girls were doing it themselves maybe a cry for attention since their mom died and he was having to work more but he didn't think any, any like anything sinister was going on. And the writing ended up being like in ketchup. So made to like look like blood, but it was ketchup. So instead, their father insisted that the girls see a therapist. So they did. But a few weeks later, it happened again. The girls heard tapping on the base, like in the basement and went downstairs to see more writing on the walls. So they did go to the basement where they heard the tapping instead of like calling the police and being like, someone's in our basement. Correct. Well, I mean, their dad didn't believe them, you know, would the police believe them. They would at least search the basement and see if someone's there. That is true. Well, this time the writing on the wall said, I'm back. Find me if you can. 
Annie and Jessica once again ran to their neighbors, but this time they called their dad to come home. So he was annoyed, but he agreed. So when he arrived home, he saw another message on the wall that the girls did not mention, and it said, marry me. As he turned around, he saw a teenage boy standing in the hallway, dressed in his dead wife's clothes, wearing a wig and holding a hatchet. What? Brian got into a scuffle with the intruder and the boy was able to escape. Was it Danny? We'll find out momentarily. Police were called and they did a detailed search of the home where they found the boy hiding in the walls of the Andrews family home. So behind a chest of drawers in the girls' room, there was a small door that leads to a crawl space. The crawl space gave access to other parts of the home and allowed the boy to move freely without being detected. The boy was identified as 16-year-old Daniel LaPlante, who was the same boy that Annie had gone on a date with two months earlier. So some reports said he spent weeks in the walls and others said that he spent two months in the walls. Oh my goodness. That is crazy. Yeah. So he was there to see the seance and he he was probably like, wow, this is even better than I imagined. Right. Like perfect opportunity. I'll pretend to be the dead mom slash wife. Exactly. I went tapping on the walls. Some reports said that there were peepholes, but unconfirmed. So he could have been watching the family, but he was like crawling out of the walls when they weren't home and moving things around and like just messing with their head. And this is before like home security and all that stuff. Yeah. So there's literally nothing they could do. You know, how did he get in the house in the first place? He just broke in, I guess, when they weren't there. And, and they didn't notice that there, like a door was unlocked or something. Maybe he locked it back from the inside. I don't know. The door to begin with. True. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's the 80s. So maybe they didn't lock the door. I bet they did after this instance. Exactly. So after his arrest, Daniel spent 10 months in juvie until he turned 17. And his case went to adult court where he posted bail to await trial for his charges of four counts of kidnapping, four counts of armed assault in a dwelling, breaking and entering a dwelling, larceny of more than a hundred dollars and malicious destruction of property. Hmm. What was the, you said kidnapping was the first charge. How is it kidnapping? I don't know exactly. I know that even if you don't, well, maybe that's like false imprisonment. If you don't let somebody like leave an area, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think kidnapping means you have to take them from one place to another. I honestly am not. I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay. So his trial was set to start on December 11th, 1987. But he's like, no, you know, I'm good. So I'm good. Did he not show up for his trial? Before we get into why he didn't have a trial, let's talk about who Daniel LaPlante is. I was just about to ask if he had parents and where were his parents. I'm assuming you're going to let me know. Because he is 16. If you're hiding in this person's wall for two months, like, does nobody know that you're not home? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Like, where are your parents? Exactly. Where are your parents, kid? Because the 80s were not like when people were getting married at 16. Like the 80s, like, you took care of your teenagers. 
And also, respectfully, I guess, if you want to say that, he didn't have a lot of suitors. So it's not like he was like, had women lining up to marry him, even if it was an option. Okay, so tell me about this guy. So Daniel LaPlante was born on May 16th, 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts. His childhood was not a happy one. There were reports of him being sexually, physically, and psychologically abused by his father and his stepfather. In school, he was dyslexic, but got no help. So he fell behind and was made fun of by his classmates who called him weird and creepy. So when he was in his teens, school authorities suggested he see a psychiatrist. So he began seeing one. Unfortunately, this therapy did not help Daniel because the psychiatrist began sexually abusing Daniel as the other trusted adult males had his entire life. That's awful. That's someone you're supposed to trust and they just do the same thing. Yeah. And I mean, he probably knew about it. I'm assuming that came out in therapy, you know, and he's like, saw an opportunity to prey on this boy who had already been victimized. Wow. So in his early teens, he began breaking into people's homes and stealing their belongings, but also moving things around the home. He enjoyed making others feel like they were going crazy. So that's like the psychological abuse he was he was subjected to. He was doing it to other people. Yeah, like in his own way. Like, I didn't set right. this here. Why is it moved? Like not showing any other signs that the house is broken into. So why would you think somebody's just coming into your house and moving your car keys or Oh my goodness. Whatever. So like I know someone who has moved stuff around to try to mess with people. And that just made me think of that story. But I'm guessing they're not a murderer. No, they're not. <laughs> but did Daniel murder anyone? We're not, not there yet. Not yet. Oh my goodness. Okay, keep going. So murder in the mountains, exactly. <laughs> Getting murdered. So this takes us back to him breaking into the Andrews home and getting arrested. So remember I said that his trial was set to start on December 11th, 1987. Well, on December 1st, 1987, while he's on like out on bail, Daniel breaks into the home of 33-year-old Priscilla and 34-year-old Andrew Gustafson. Priscilla was a church nursery teacher and Andrew was an attorney. They had a seven-year-old daughter named Abigail and a five-year-old son named William, and Priscilla was pregnant with their third child. On the morning of December 1st, Priscilla was home with William as Abigail was at school and Andrew was at work when Daniel enters the home holding two stolen handguns. He forces Priscilla into her bedroom where he beat and raped her before putting a pillow over her head and firing the gun twice. He then moved on to William, who he drowned in the upstairs bathroom. From William was the husband? William's William. the little boy, the five-year-old son. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, Andrew's the father and husband. I was just about to be like, how did he physically do that? But he was the child. Yes. Oh, that's awful. So he really escalated from hiding in girls' walls and making them, you know, feel crazy to just going in and murdering these people. So shortly after, Abigail gets off the bus and returns home. Daniel then takes her and drowns her in the downstairs bathroom. Andrew Gustafson arrives home from work around 5 p.m. 
where he finds his wife's body and immediately calls the police, not wanting to find his dead children's bodies himself. And I feel like it's surprising that they didn't just automatically assume Andrew because it's like, how do you not go check and see where your kids are? Maybe they're alive. Right. And the husband is usually always the first one to be like questioned. Exactly. And I feel like that's just something that they would have like focused on like, oh, you didn't check on them because you knew they were already dead. So so how did they know? How did it lead to Daniel? Did he leave evidence that it was him? So police, when they arrived on the scene, they found the children's bodies. And they also found bullet casings and semen stains on the bed and shoe prints and a flower bed. So police came up with a list of potential suspects and Daniel's name was on the list, considering he broke into people's houses. He lived a mile away from the crime scene and he was out on bail at the time. So they questioned him the next day and he denied any knowledge of the crime, of course. So they let him go because they had no hard evidence but went back to his house later that day to question him further. It was then that Daniel fled into the woods when he saw the police arrive. When searching the woods, police found a pair of wet gloves, which they assumed he wore when drowning the kids, and one of his shirts. So a manhunt ensued, including police dogs and helicopters, and Daniel was eventually captured the next day on December 3rd, after abducting a woman at gunpoint and stealing her car. So she was able to get away and tell the police the kind of car that Daniel was now driving. So Daniel was charged with the murders of Priscilla, Abigail, and William with overwhelming evidence against him, including his shoes matching the flower bed impression, the semen matching his blood type because back then they couldn't, definitively say that it was you know his and his thumbprint was on their phone so he was evaluated by a psychiatrist who deemed him fit to stand trial and he was found guilty of three counts of murder after five hours of deliberation and sentenced to three life sentences to be served consecutively he filed multiple appeals to get his sentence reduced but all appeals have been denied So there was like a Supreme Court ruling that was passed. That was like any child that was sentenced to life in prison is unconstitutional because I guess, you know, they're kids at the time. So he used that and they're like, nope, that, you know, that doesn't apply to you. You're still getting life in prison. He tried to get his life sentences to be served concurrently instead of consecutively which means he would be eligible for parole after 45 years because apparently a life sentence is only 25 years. And oh, it's not actually like your life? No. It's like... Did not know that. Yeah. So I guess the, that's like when they say 25 years to life. But if you don't get parole, then you're not up for it anyway. You know, so you will serve your whole life in prison. But mm-hmm. if you have parole, you know, then you're up for that. But they said, nope, it's going to be consecutively. So he is still serving out his life sentences at the MCI Norfolk prison in Norfolk, Massachusetts. And I'm not sure about the trial for the Andrews family, but I mean, I'm assuming they went to trial and he was found guilty of that as well. But that is 
That's the story of Daniel LaPlante. Obviously, he had a terrible dad and stepdad. But what about his mom? Did you say something about his mom or stepmom or whoever? I did not say anything about his mom. Not in the picture. Had to have been because he had a stepdad. Right. So that's that makes me think like, what were you doing when your kid was out hiding in walls? Exactly. Like, how do you not question where your child is? Yeah. I mean, obviously it was a toxic environment and I don't know if, I don't know what was going on. If she was neglectful, if I don't know. I wonder if that was like in the trial, if they questioned them. I'm, I'm sure they did. Hmm. Semi-related, just a funny coincidence that you were talking about thinking that there's an animal in your wall before we started recording. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. So for listeners, right before we started recording, I have been hearing this squeaking noise coming from our fireplace. And I think there is an animal, like a bird's nest or something. And the bird is like calling out, like trying to find a mate or something. I don't know. But literally Adam walked over and starts hitting on the fireplace to try to loosen up whatever animals in there. And I'm like, if a rat comes out, I'm going to flip out. So yeah, perfect little um, story for us this evening. I also feel like because we always record at night that it's almost like, what was that show? Are you afraid of the dark? Whatever, like you're telling us like ghost stories. This show was kind of ghosty. I know, right before bed. Anyways, there's an animal on our wall. I hope it's not a person. I was like, oh, how funny. (laughs) That's what you're saying. I'm not going to sleep tonight, Alexa. Thanks. I was like, just you wait. It could be a boy in a wig and a dress with a hatchet. Oh my gosh, I'm having nightmares tonight. He's in prison, though. That's right. Adam, any thoughts? You're very quiet. Y'all did good. (laughs) Thank you. Bravo. So if y'all don't have anything else, if everybody could uh, leave a review on Apple Podcast and follow us on Instagram at Murder in the Mountains, I will post photos of the case as usual. Um, If y'all want to leave some case suggestions, we can do that too and see what you guys want to hear. We'll see you next week for another episode of Murder in the Mountains. See ya. Bye.